Hello, robots, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies. Today we're going to be discussing Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman's novel Good Omens, The Nice and Accurate Prophecies of Agnes Nutter, Witch. This was a fun read to come back to, because I think we had both read it previously, but not in quite so recent times. Yes, that is correct. I read it quite a while ago. I might have read it multiple times, but I am not. It's been lost to the mists of time. <laughs> As so many of our past reads have become. Yeah, I, I, I did the same thing. This was the second time I had read it. I think I read it two years ago. And it's interesting what sticks out to you on a second reading, especially like from my perspective, I've read a lot more of Terry Pratchett's work in the interim so I, it was interesting to come back and be like yeah that sounds like terry but to get us going would you would you mind giving us we say brief is it ever true who knows maybe today will be the day can you give us a brief summary of the novel yes this novel starts out with a baby swap which is one of my personal favorite plot devices but Hell has basically decided that it's time to bring about the apocalypse and they have an Antichrist and they are going to swap out the Antichrist uh, with the baby of an American diplomat. They have arranged for this birth to take place at a satanic hospital <laughs> in the middle of the British countryside. But what they didn't plan for is that another, a really nice, normal British couple is also at the hospital. So there's three babies. And one of the satanic nuns is sort of airheaded. And she switches out the wrong baby. So that the baby goes to this nice, normal British family. Or the Antichrist does. The Antichrist goes to this nice, normal family. Another baby gets placed with the American diplomat and gets named Warlock because the nuns are convinced that it's the Antichrist, but it's not. Anyway, that's like a side plot line that we won't talk about anymore. And then something happens to the third baby and we're like left imagining what that might be. But anyway, uh, the Antichrist goes up, grows up in this nice, normal British household. And there's something kind of like weird about this kid. But, like, no one really thinks anything of it. And it turns out, over the past several millennia, this angel and this demon, Crawley is the demon, and who turns out to have been the serpent <laughs> in the original, you know, free will temptation, situation. And there's an angel called Aziraphale, and they've come to an understanding over the years that, you know, they have more in common, perhaps, than they do with their respective uh, management, we'll say. They both really like living on Earth. Uh, in Crowley's case, he gets to sleep. There's lots of things to do. There's music to listen to. Uh, Aziraphale really likes old books and good wine. I think they both really like good wine. But they're, they're pretty content just hanging out on Earth, you know, doing a little bit here and there to stay in management's good graces, but not actually enough to, you know, actually in the world. And now the Antichrist is coming, and it's time for the apocalypse. So fast forward 11 years later, 
And we actually become acquainted with the Book of Prophecies referenced in the title. And it turns out there is a witch in the 1500s, 15th century, I think, that... That sounds right. She was actually a really good prophetess and recorded all of these prophecies. Uh, And they're sort of... You have to kind of decode them because she's like a 15th century you know, witch trying to understand the 20th century. So things are a little bit garbled. But essentially, she foretold that the end of the world was coming and that her descendants would play a role in it. So her descendant that's present at this time is a young woman called Anathema Device. And interestingly enough, there's also another little subgroup of people that are a witchfinder army, which is really an old man named Shadwell, and a wages clerk named Newt Pulsifier. And Newt just really needs a hobby, uh, so his hobby is witchfinding. And he goes off to uh, Lower Tadfield, where the Antichrist lives, and Anathema has ended up. Essentially, everyone is basically running around like going, is it the end of the world? Like, is it now? And it's like, it's now. And they're basically trying to figure out what's going on, but they don't, I don't think they really have any control over the situation. Everything is uh, sort of in Adam's hands. That's what they named the Antichrist, was Adam. It's really interesting because the, the world ends because, not because anyone stops the Antichrist, but because the Antichrist decides that, no thank you. There will be no end of the world. You can all uh, return to your respective corners. We're done here. You know, not dissimilar from the end of uh, American Gods, now that I think about it. But um, it's sort of a no-one-win situation. And and that's that's sort of good omens in what I think might actually have been a fairly brief summary. Did you have anything to add? No, I think that that's pretty good. I think we might, maybe we could just jump in on like that last point where the main climax of the book is that nobody wins. And that is something that on this read through, I think I got more out of because there's a specific scene. There, there's a few, there's a few scenes in, it's all, how happens on Saturday, which is the day Agnes Nutter is like, okay, the world is going to end on this day at this time. So everybody's racing against the clock. And Aziraphale and Crowley both speak with their respective superiors. And Aziraphale knows the location of the Antichrist. And he's just like, yeah, so I, I know who this who this kid is. We can go stop it, right? Like, n- none of this has to happen. And he's talking to Metatron, the voice of God. and he's And he basically asks, why would we want to stop it? Like, we need to win. And that um, is something that we saw throughout the book with the demons. Um, I remember Haster and and Liger were the two, like, dukes that he talked with who were like, we're gonna win and blah, blah, blah. And they were very um, typical demons, but we'd, we'd never really heard from the angels until that moment where that, like, that righteous self-assurance manifests itself very similarly in both camps and that's something that um Crowley and Aziraphale sort of discuss at a few points throughout the course of the book is how 
good and evil are not the absolutes each side thinks they are. They're just names for two sides. And what's discussed in the book is how an apparently bad thing can lead to good results and that good actions can lead to bad results. So it's never really clear who is doing good and who's doing bad. I think one of my favorite examples is it's Haster gets trapped in a phone line and he escapes the phone line when someone calls Crawley's answering machine. I'm not going to explain any of the mechanics of that. You don't need to know. It's just a thing that happens. It's just a thing that accept it and move on. (laughs) You've probably read the book, but uh, he comes writhing out of the telephone in like a wave of magnets consumes all of the telephone salespeople in the office and then like burps and goes back to hell leaving cleanly picked skeletons behind and you would think this is an evil thing he just murdered like eight people but the book goes on Mm -hmm. to discuss how like the deaths of those eight people actually led to like a widespread wave of low-level good rolling over the city because people weren't irritated and grumpy and cranky because they had to deal with a telephone salesperson. Yeah, that's something that's that's discussed with in a different context where Crowley talks about when he first, like, has his first little meeting with the, the Dukes of Hell who have the Antichrist in a little bassinet that he's supposed to take to the hospital. Haster's like, we must recount the events of the day. The two dukes talk about how they're, you know, bringing dukes and cardinals and politicians, like, to their side. Like, they keep saying, like, in so many years we will have him or something like that. And Crowley's like, I tied up every phone line in London for 45 minutes at lunchtime. <laughs> and, they, and they don't understand how how horrifically evil that is especially in a time before when for everybody had cell phones right like they talk about it's so funny how how very charmingly dated the book is because they talk about how crowley has has a has a car phone yes and the the other demons like don't understand how technology works really so they're like oh it must need a lot of wire (laughs) because if it's gonna be going from somewhere and you're carrying it everywhere but he he talks kind of about about that low low grade evil that will then permeate through everybody it touches and they will do more horrible things to each other of their own volition and from their own imaginations than demons could ever dream of yeah that's like the wonder of of humanity right I really like the inverse example, though, and I think, I don't know how many there are in the book, but this is the only one that really sticks out to me, is Aziraphale was there, and he and Crawley were talking after, you know, Crawley was the serpent in the tree. But anyway, Aziraphale gives his flaming angel sword to Adam and Eve so that they will have fire, and it's not clear whether or not that is a good action. And I think Aziraphale has a little bit of anxiety about it. (laughs) Aziraphale really wants to do good, but I think over the years he's gotten more and more confused about what that actually (laughs) entails anymore. He does things like make bikes nicer and (laughs) and things like that. So 
I think evil might is a little bit more fun to to talk about. I think one thing that I am put in mind of is C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters. And I remember reading some commentary, I think, written by C.S. Lewis himself. And he had said if he had tried to write the book from the perspective of an angel trying to protect someone, it wouldn't have worked. That book is made up of a series of letters written by a demon who's like, I think he's talking to like a junior demon, maybe like his nephew. He's talking about the best ways to kind of bring someone over to the dark side and like tarnish their soul in that book are sort of expanded upon in good omens like the idea that like it's not just about the murdering and the adultering and the really clear-cut stuff it's like how gluttony can be like it's about needing like your toast prepared in a very specific way things like Mm -hmm. that like that's a form of gluttony so that kind of harkens back to this book in in many ways yeah, I, I think a lot of what the book talks about is good and evil on the more cosmic scale, which is what Aziraphale and Crowley come from, and on the more regular human scale, which is what they've now both grown into as being, they're the only two, if I remember correctly, they're the only two celestial beings one's an angel one's a demon who've been on earth full-time since the beginning they never went back to their respective places and they've grown used to it (laughs) and there's a whole long conversation where they're both like really horribly drunk in aziraphale's shop and crowley is like taunting him with like do you really want to go to a place that doesn't have sushi restaurants? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and and it's and it's that kind of little temptations and little in, in indulgences that are such a huge part of Aziraphale's character in a way that doesn't necessarily make him evil. It's funny to look at that in the context of what Crowley did in the beginning mm-hmm. where he was the entity that was the original the the facilitator of the original temptation and how that's neither good or bad in the in its newer context right that's a thing that's really interesting that Crowley talks about is he doesn't make them do anything they have free will he just sort of provides an avenue for them to fail uh, and how that's not necessary. He doesn't perceive that as necessarily evil, you know, because he's not forcing them to do anything. They have a choice. Uh, and Aziraphale doesn't really buy that. Yeah, it's interesting how Aziraphale doesn't really buy that. There's there's a section in true Pratchett style where it's sort of, it takes the joke and then makes it not funny, where they talk about Satanists. And different kinds of Satanists. Because the whole um, hospital in the beginning was run by, I think it's the Chattering Nuns of the Order of St. Beryl. Who are very, very amusing (laughs) young women who just are getting on with their lives. But there's an extended conversation about the kinds of Satanists. And there's the kind that are like the Chattering Order who are just kind of like... They're very casual about it. Like, they're like, it, it's, when you grow up in something, it's just a thing you do. 
there's a kind of Satanist that 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 Crowley especially really is made uncomfortable by, and it's the people who do these things of their own will, and then go back on, oh, but the the devil made me do it, and and he's like, they're free to think that, but it's not the truth. Yeah. I think one of the things that gets talked about a lot is that humans have so much more imagination (laughs) than angels or demons. My other favorite thing that kind of falls into this category is how Crowley and Aziraphale often compare notes on who is for what. So there's a lot of things that heaven and hell both kind of stake a claim in as like that they're responsible for. Or things that they're like, well, I thought you did that. <laughs> like one of the main one of the main things in the book is there's this witchfinder's army, and the witchfinder's army is on the payroll of both heaven and hell, and that's where Shadwell and Newt kind of come in as members of this quote unquote illustrious order. <laughs> Not so much, but that's also one of the great jokes of the book. But, I mean, this book has jokes on jokes on jokes on jokes. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of bleed into one another, so you're not really sure where some of them end, end or begin. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about the rhythm of the book and how... So this book doesn't have chapters. It kind of follows Pratchett's style in that sense, just the way that it's structured. Uh, I think we both agree that there's a lot of Pratchett in in the way this book is constructed. Mm-hmm. But if you're familiar with Pratchett's works, you know that instead of chapters, we get a lot of scene breaks. The scenes can be pages and pages long, like chapters, or they can be really, really short. And Neil Gaiman works more in in chapters, I think we've seen. But at the end of each of these scene breaks, I feel like most of the scene breaks end with, they end with a punchline. And a lot of the times that punchline is funny, and sometimes that punchline is an actual punch. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's the rhythm of the book, is that each of these scenes builds to, uh, like a point. And I think... That is also seen in Pratchett's other novels, but I don't think it's as, like, each section is not necessarily as consistently pointy as they are in this book. Like, there's definitely a sharpness to the book's humor, and, like, the frequency of the humor, I think, is higher than if Neil Gaiman or Terry Pratchett wrote alone. Yeah, I I definitely agree, and I I think that could also be seen in the, the pointiness of each section because I'm I'm reading slowly but surely I'm rereading the original run of Sandman which is what Neil Gaiman was in the middle of working on while they were writing this book. I've noticed that he he does that. We we talked about we've talked about this I think once in a while about how Neil Gaiman is one of those writers where he writes towards something whether it's a a individual line or a scene or or whatever and he and that's very consistent across his work. And I think that a lot of that particular structure is here, just in a bit more of a micro sense instead of macro. Yeah, I think the best example of that, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show before, but the ocean at the end of the lane. Mm. That book fucked me up. Yeah, it's, and it's because the whole book works up to this point 
And that point is the line, you don't pass or fail as a human, dear. And I'm I'm sure, maybe it's person, but like, you get the point. And the whole book, the entire book, I feel like works itself up to that line. And that's not necessarily something that I think all books do. And not all books should have to. I mean, there's there's different uh, structures and I'm not saying that one is superior to the other. But I think that's something I really appreciate about Gaiman's work in particular. I think Pratchett doesn't necessarily work up to a point as much. Like, he is sort of sprawling in his points. Like, I think when we talked about The Fifth Elephant, how many directions did we go in talking about that? About how it was about, you know, gender identity and, you know, foreign affairs and just all kinds of things. And it was equally about all of those things. But a lot of Neil Gaiman's work kind of just comes up to this one point. Yeah. I I definitely agree. You see that in American Gods. Sometimes it's more of an issue by issue case in Sandman, but that is something that is that is very consistent in his work in a very different way, like you said, than it is in in Terry Pratchett. Terry Pratchett's very sprawling, and I and I think this book is a good mix of the two, where it's it still has that that sprawling nature, where like it's almost scene by scene, it all builds into something. But it has um, a little bit more discipline than I think we're used to seeing in the, the pure Pratchett work. Yeah, I think we also see the influence of Pratchett because this is definitely another ensemble piece. I think Neil Gaiman does typically have the one main protagonist. I don't, I don't think that's as true in something like Sandman, but I think in a lot of his novels that is the case, like stardust is that book called stardust yes okay so in stardust we follow tristram tristan i don't know i think the movie they call him tristan because like tristran is just too much i can't remember i might be making this up as we speak welcome to radio (laughs) and american gods has shadow you get kind of an it's not really an ensemble there are these set pieces in american gods that don't function the same as an ensemble cast exactly and and like sandman is kind of the same way where even though there's many minor characters both in the whole piece and on an issue by issue basis the sandman is the main character yeah morpheus is the main character throughout the whole thing his his importance in each individual scene kind of comes and goes but it is ultimately about him his actions how those actions are influenced and what they affect and that is almost the opposite is in is in good omens where every piece is just as important to the whole as any other and even though crowley and aziraphale are 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 our introduction into the world they're ultimately not the most far-reaching piece most arguably that could be adam and and the them i did all i did kind of laugh how they were also the like the the four horsemen riding on bicycles (laughs) of prophecy that was another point that i kind of wanted to get to that i i think was very i think got me more this 
this read through than the last time, probably because I'm more separated from being 11 years old now. But like the whole idea of the fate of the world resting on this 11 year old kid and him realizing if I do this thing, I can't be a kid anymore. And I don't want to sacrifice that. I think I appreciate that more now that I'm closer to being a quote unquote real adult and being like, well, that's terrible. Yeah. It, it is kind of a cliche, but I think it's true that we don't truly appreciate being a kid until you can't be one anymore. Yeah, I was just thinking about how my perception of my own childhood has, like, altered as I've gotten older. And it's definitely gotten rosier, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's normal. Yeah, but I think I'm also, like, I don't know that everyone is always aware that it's happening, so I have, like... The rosy view of my childhood, and I also have this, like, separate actual memory of my childhood. And, like, they're both in there, and it's, like, a weird cognitive dissonance for me, right? Yeah. Because things are obviously simpler and easier when I was a child, but they didn't actually feel that way when I was a child. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. I think I I was similar. Like, I think back on high school a lot. And I think some of it comes from this American cultural perception that high school is supposed to be the best years of your life. And I'm like, I hope not. Oh, Not because my high school experience was particularly terrible or anything like that. It's just like, it's that whole idea of you rush and rush and rush into being an adult. And then, then there's that other half of that coin where you're like, oh my god, my life is over now. I'm old. And it's like, neither of those are really true. And I, and I think... What I get out of the choice to have a child be the deciding factor in a lot of this is that adults undervalue and underappreciate the ability of children to make those kind of decisions. Yeah. That one of the main points that Crowley makes very early on in the book that kind of comes home is you are not who you are born to. And that you, even if you have this great quote-unquote destiny, like Adam allegedly does, like, he still has a choice. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I didn't really pick up on, I think, as much the first time I read through, is that now that I'm at an age where, like, your choices feel like they have world-ending importance, it's something that I think rang truer to me this read-through than the last one. If that any of that made sense. Yes, I I agree with everything I think you said. One thing I would like to mention as just sort of supporting that argument is the idea of children being underestimated or their abilities being underappreciated by adults is something I think you see in Neil Gaiman's work a lot. I mean, because he, he's actually a fairly prolific writer for children. I would not call The Ocean at the End of the Lane a children's book. <laughs> I think there yeah. was some <laughs> attempt to market it like that. And I, was, and I read it and I'm like, no, I'm not sure what age level this book is appropriate for. Because as an adult woman, I don't know that I was ready for it. But <laughs> I mean, you have The Ocean at the End of the Lane as an example. Because that's really sort of weirdly about Neil Gaiman's childhood but obviously not really about it 
you have Coraline is another really great example of that. And those are the two main ones. But I think also to a certain extent, you could put the graveyard book in there. Yeah, I, I was reminded of the graveyard book a bit while reading this, just in that overall theme of pushing this importance upon children while while also continually underestimating them. Yeah. I think that's something adults kind of do. They're like, you have to go to college and get a good job and be prepared for the real world. But like, I don't know. I feel like that can be toxic in some situations. I agree. I think it can be. And I think it's unfortunate that a lot of the times that toxicity is not intended. Mm-hmm. It's something that is passed on to people, either because some someone else's parents did it to them and now they're doing it to you because that's what you do and, and that kind of stuff. We can see some of that in the book just because, like, to everybody else, like, as much as Crowley and Aziraphale want to stop the apocalypse, they don't ever really understand that it's not in their power. Mm-hmm. Like, they always assume, oh, something else will make the Antichrist do this. The whole time, I'm just like, I know you don't know it, but he has a name. <laughs> he's he's just a kid. At the end of the day, with his whole thing is, as we get to know Adam throughout the week that is this book, because the book sections are split into the seven, I think it's the seven days leading up to the end of the world, where he is put upon to make these these big decisions and you realize and this is one thing i kind of like about it about the book he's allowed to have those back and forth almost violent influxes of emotion that all kids have because there there's a lot of big emotions for tiny tiny humans (laughs) and he is every almost a lot of things that he does comes from wanting to make the world worth growing up in I think that is especially relevant in the ongoing cultural conversation we're having now about, like, the resurgence of global fascism and also, like, climate change. Like, we were talking about this in the production meeting about how, like, that's one of my, like, I hesitate to call it a trigger because it's, it's, it's really not, but it's fucking getting there, homies. That, that idea of we're all slowly going to sink into the, like, the heat death of the earth. (laughs) in a very measurable amount of time and there is very little you as an individual can do about it like that is horrifying to the point where where like if if you think about it long enough and this might just be my personality but if i think about it long enough you can get to the point that adam gets in at one in one one stage of the book where he's just like then why are we doing it the world's not worth growing up in I don't think in the moment he means that in as existentially terrifying a way as it can be. But I think that is something, especially people our age, can relate to. Is like, this world that you were promised is no longer feasible or just didn't exist in the first place. And how, how violent of an emotional response that can invoke when you kind of turn that corner. Regardless of if it's true or not. I think that is something a lot of people can relate to. Yeah. In a way that is still very relevant. Yeah, I would say so. As much as the book is like charmingly dated in terms of the technology, those themes still hang around, right? Like there's still we still have anxiety about nuclear war, we still have anxiety about the environment. 
conspiracy theories are still a thing. That was one of the things I enjoyed is what does what does the end of days look like when you are 11 and hopped up on like the new Aquarian digest? Yeah, right. Pretty funny, it turns out, but also sort of horrifying. <laughs> Tibetans turn up in everyone's yard because now there's a tunnel system. That's one of the interesting things that happens in the book is because Adam is the Antichrist, his will bends reality into whatever he sort of believes is true. So he's 11. <laughs> And he reads these magazines that Anathema gives him and is like, okay, well, I believe all this stuff. Yeah, with that intense, powerful belief that only children can have. Right. So Atlantis rises from the waves, the kraken pops up, it rains fish everywhere. That might actually be more revelations. I'm not really up on my on my Bible the way I should be for a supposed literary critic. Uh, <laughs> but I hope you will forgive me. Yeah, there was so much of the book where they said it was from Revelations, and I'm like, I'm going to have to trust you, Neil. <laughs> Terry, I'm just going to say that's that's correct. Something that has, I think, aged very well. Because sometimes books can age not great. In, in a certain way, any media can age not great, but... This is a book, and I th- and we talk about this all the time when we talk about our Discworld episodes. And we talked about this a little bit with American Gods, about the whole idea that there is something relevant, that even though the time period is different, that relevance, that relevancy remains. And I think this is a very good example of that working to its its full effect, because... You're right. There's fun little things where you're like, oh my god, Crowley has a car phone. Oh my god, that's so 90s. Like, <laughs> there's, there's, there's stuff like that. But it is still, like, that that overarching anxiety about the end of days is a bit timeless in and of itself, I think. Yes. And they, they, they exploit that to its fullest extent. Yep, everyone has been complaining about the youth, the technology, and predicting the end of the world since the beginning of the world. Oh yeah, for real. (laughs) That is a thing. This book does kind of update the source material, the source material being revelations. (laughs) Yeah. And Pestilence in the book has retired after the advent of penicillin and pollution has taken over and that works so well in the book it's such a good switch because it makes sense we were kind of talking about this in our production meeting pollution at least in the sense that they use it in this book works very to a similar end uh, as pestilence does in revelations Mm-hmm. That that might be a subplot that bears just kind of talking about for a little bit because it is very interesting is um the four horsemen who are now a biker gang which I thought was legit. Neil Gaiman wrote the four horsemen subplot or at least the majority of it and there's War who's a female war correspondent named Scarlet there's um Mr. Sable who's Famine who is like this ultra famous kind of i kind of saw him a little bit as like a dr oz kind of figure oh yeah 
is way famous and he's written this book about like basically starve yourself until you're thin it's like foodless dieting i think is what it was called and he makes this food that has a, a, like this food that you lose weight because there's nothing in it mm-hmm. there's no nutritional value in it the scene where we're introduced to him where he's having drinks with like one of his secretaries or something or one of his assistants rather he talks about going to this restaurant where it's this food style that he invented where there's like it's so like nouveau riche and all this other crap there's a slice of chicken breast like one green bean and like one piece of broccoli or something like that the way he knows it's a job well done is because he's never seen that many rich people that hungry yeah and that was like that's a real thing you see in like fancy restaurants where you're just like where's the rest of my dinner i mean i have never personally been to a restaurant that fancy Oh no, me neither. <laughs> I have seen the food pictures on uh-huh. on the various media outlets. <laughs> yeah, because because that because that is such of a thing. It's like being rich enough to starve, pretty much, and that obsession with thinness is still something I think I think in our age of the Instagram in, in influencer is still very relevant. And there's pollution, there's Mr. White, like like you said, who's, who's, I love the description of him in that he's always there, but no one really remembers him. Yes. I don't know why that was so good to me, but it was just so fucking good. Because when there's a whole sequence of scenes where we're introduced to the four horsemen, it does a really cool thing where you know they're the four horsemen. <laughs> like, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, because it, even though they're not named that, like, they all have names that correspond to, like, the cult, what their colors are and stuff like that. Mr. White is was, like, the semen on this oil rigger that he basically o- overrode all of the security protocols and dumped, like, their full load of oil in the ocean. And, like, none of the other people on the boat ever worked again. But no one ever remembered he was even there. Mm-hmm. Because nobody gives him anything but a casual glance. That is still something that we're struggling with. Like, think of all the horrific man-made natural crises that, like, have occurred since this book was published. Especially Ugh. in regards to oil. Ugh. <laughs> it's crazy. And, like, the whole ongoing conversation we're having about plastic and, like, all, all this other stuff. Like, that is definitely something that remains relevant and it and it's a good switch because that even though we live get very angry when i think about this even though we live in an age where people don't vaccinate their fucking kids <laughs> so pestilence may yet come out of retirement it's a good overall switch to something that is much more pressing to our modern world and then there's death who's kind of the death of the disc world and that he's like he talks similarly in that it's the way it's formatted. He talks in all caps with no quotations. He has one of the best quotes, which is like, don't think of it as dying. Think of it as leaving early to avoid the rush. <laughs> like, all of the, I almost don't want to call them subplots because none of them really are. They're all just a part of the larger plot, which I guess is the definition of a subplot, but <laughs> I don't know. But like the four horsemen, the four kids. I think was a subplot I appreciated a lot more this read through. Yeah. Because the kids are really well written. <laughs> I love the kids. Wasn't when, didn't we find out that Wensleydale was the third kid? 
who, no, we never knew what happened to him. Oh, the third baby, I think, actually. The third baby. Or what was that the other boy? It's implied that the third baby might be Greasy Johnson, who is the them's arch yes. nemesis. And, That's true. And runs the other kid gang in town. Because <laughs> there's this vaguely threatening section where they're like, you sure you want to know what happened to the other baby? And then it comes around and is like, you were right. He's fine. <laughs> And I'm just like, God damn it. Why do you scare me like that? Yeah. But that, that is, I think, a sort of microcosm of the style of plot payoff that happens in the book. Is that everyone kind of is okay at the end of it. Because if, yeah, you don't win. But you don't lose. And I think that is something that the kids talk about as sort of the the deciding factor at the end of the book, where Adam has decided that there's not going to be an apocalypse. And he talks to them about how, like, you know, Greasy Johnson, their arch nemesis, how would you feel, like, if he just was gone? He wasn't there anymore. And the kids are like, at first, they're like, oh, well, like, he's our, you know, it would be great. And then, but then I think it's Pepper is like, but would things be as interesting without an arch nemesis like and and the kids come around to this idea that greasy johnson and his gang are sort of necessary to like their world making sense and being a fulfilling world and it's sort of like these little gangs of kids running around are a are a microcosm of heaven of the conflict between heaven and hell like they need each other for the world to make sense and one without the other would just be sort of boring like it's implied that only like elger and like one other composer are in heaven uh, yeah <laughs> and do you really want to be stuck with them for forever uh-huh. i i guess it's sort of this thing that like you'd need that push pull in the world in order for it to make sense and not sort of be this monotonous awful drudging thing yeah, it's implied several times in over the course of the novel that they're the good that the angels tout as like their great virtue is not that great. <laughs> it, it's it's not that great. And a lot of it comes down to never really making decisions and being kind of boring and and all that stuff. They define themselves, and I think evil does this as well, they they sort of define them, themselves by what they're not. Mm-hmm. And you can't have that if that other half... Isn't there. Isn't there. Exactly. And and I think that that, that is a very good takeaway from the whole novel, is that there there is no point to winning in that sense, because then everything that is beautiful that makes up the whole world will ultimately collapse into a monotonous badly composed (laughs) yeah it's like it's a tension thing like it only works because there's something pulling at both ends exactly there was one last thing i wanted to talk about if i may that i think is again one of those nice microcosms that you can apply to the whole plot and it's it's in it's in the sunday section the last section and it's with anathema and neil where um or newt excuse me (laughs) 
Neil. I don't know where that fucking came from. They're interchangeable, right? That's a vaguely British lad name. Um, I mean, yeah, he... Neil Gaiman is lit- like that's he's a. That's true. Neil Gaiman is literally from from Britain. <laughs> but it's with um, Anathema and Newt, who are destined to be together per the, per the prophecies, and Anathema finds a sequel to the original Book of Prophecy. And she's like, sit, she like sits down to read it, and she's gonna take notes. And Newt closes the book, looks at her, and says, "Do you want to be a professional descendant for the rest of your life?" I think that that's something we can apply to the actions, especially of Aziraphale and Crowley, and everybody who's working towards, specifically like the events of the Book of Revelation and all this other stuff. But there's this whole idea that. We have to work towards this because that's what we've been told. And it takes an 11-year-old kid (laughs) to say, fuck that. I'm going to do what I want. And nobody's going to win and nobody's going to lose. And we're going to decide who we are. And I think that that is ultimately the biggest takeaway from everything is you are not who you are born from. You do not have to be what anyone says you have to be. And the flip side of that, in a way that is terrifying and intimidating, is that you are ultimately who you decide to be and what you decide to do. All right, robots, that is all that we really have time for this evening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation around Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. If you did, you should review, rate the podcast, possibly. You could share it with one of your other weird friends. We know you have them. Next time, we'll be talking about Nightwatch, which I have been waiting for with bated breath. Low these these five to seven years. I think it might have actually been five years. I know. I think you're right. I know. So (laughs) keeping track, (laughs) I just I have a little calendar that I look at sadly periodically. (laughs) Yes, as the time is just counted up. Yeah, so get ready for Nightwatch, y'all, because I think it's the pinnacle of everything that Terry Pratchett has ever written. So get ready. Yeah, I'm setting this. I'm setting us up for failure. I hope you appreciate that. And then after that, uh, Rachel's going to go on vacation, so I'll be doing my annual solo episode uh, where I might pick up a comic or something. I don't know. I might change it. It, it was so long ago that I did a solo episode and I only did the one. I don't know. We could. Do, I could do anything. You could do anything. You have the power. You are who you decide to be. Yeah, so watch out for that. So, Rachel, if they want to talk to us about other stuff we didn't get to, maybe, like, about how prophecy and free will and divine will and temptation all work together in this book, like, where where would they do that? You can find us most readily on our Twitter, at Remedial Studies. You can find us on the Tumblers, remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. You can find us on Instagram. We're just at Remedial Studies there as well. And we also have an email account, remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. Please connect with us in some way. We are very hungry for it. Um, (laughs) We are also starving for your rates and reviews. And I'm not afraid to say it. So 
if you have a moment and just want to reach out to us, we are um pretty much always available. But my my prime Twitter hours are like three to five a.m. on weeknights. <laughs> so if you're up and you can't sleep, please come and hang out with me. It'll be a good time for both of us. Or if you live in a different time zone, because we have some international listeners. That's the thing. Uh, hey. People from Sweden and New Zealand who listen to our show, please, please chat with me. It'll be a reasonable hour for you. Yeah. So, Rachel, you want to you wanna walk us out? I think I do. Robots, you will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time. Bye, robots. Bye.